ESU Stanford. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show about housing, land use, policy, economics, and more. Today on the program, we have on Alex Baca. Alex Baca is a writer writing about land use, transportation, and housing. Currently in D.C., but previously in Cleveland and San Francisco. We're also joined by Holly Zhu, who's been on the program before. Let's get into it. So welcome, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> and welcome back, Ollie. Hey. So uh, you have been experiencing the Santa Clara Public Transit. Uh, you were excited about it before you came here. Have you have you been have you been experiencing it to your full extent? I have been experiencing it to the fullest extent since I lived here um, when I took Caltrain very infrequently. So. <laughs> so when you were when you were in SF, how often would you come down to Santa Clara County? I think I came down here like twice. <laughs> well, and there's not many good reasons to come down here. No, there's not. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got the Santa Clara 49ers now, so. Oh, oh, yeah. You have a light rail system with nearly no ridership. Yeah. It's pretty nice, though. I, I saw a blimp yesterday, you know, in Santa Clara County. That was exciting. <laughs> um, so the uh, I think an important question, uh, your catchphrase, uh, community for whomst, is it starting to feel like a burden or is it still a fresh feeling catchphrase that you'll never get sick of? Um, I think it is still relevant, although I have been told by some parties that whomst is very 2018. Um, so I need to re- work on some rebranding. But um, no, I mean, I think it's generally a funny question. Um, I sort of like... I was trying to like troll people with my Twitter handle with the for whomst thing because I was noticing it coming up in the discourse and like as a very reactive kind of thing which I thought was not useful right because like by the time you're asking like who's it for in a sort of snarky tone you probably know that it's like not not for you or not for the group that you're trying to imply that it should be for if that makes sense. So I find it to be a very like reactive and not useful dunk. And I was seeing that like coming up a lot, like, um, and just didn't find it very constructive. Um, like the community for whom's thing was sort of like communities are actually not for most people. Like we know that, like, so, you know, immediately reacting to be like, who's it for in like a later stage is like not necessarily meaningful. I do think it's a good question to ask, like at the foundational goal setting part of your process, if you want to talk about project management <laughs> well i mean it's a good question like you know are our cities fair you know are is does everybody give to the deserve but it is this kind of thing it's like well if it isn't you know this massive win for everybody we can just say it's not for you know it's like who's this for and then it's end. Well, I, I think your statement isn't so much it's not anti you know that kind of statement it's more neutral of just saying it's ridiculous how off how bad the discourse is I, I don't i don't know that's my yeah and like the fact that we have to continually or that that it's either like an honest question that you can ask like later in the stage of something or like that you can use it as sort of a snarky kind of pushback i think indicates to me that like no we do a terrible job with anything like in terms of like i guess you could call it universal design or equity planning which are two terms that kind of drive me nuts but are useful because they're used. But, um, you know, I think it's like a worthwhile thing to ask. Absolutely. But to just treat that as like the most meaningful criticism that you can deliver is really reductive and not super helpful. Um, Especially if you're not really willing to follow it up with a real, because so many people, they just want to snipe and move on and never really engage in answering. I mean, I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying everybody's <laughs> like that, but there's certainly a lot of people who are not good faith uh, interlocutors. Yeah. And I think in terms of like 
cities, right, or places that people live, like when it gets delivered when like someone doesn't like something and they're just like, well, who's it for? And it's like, no, no, it's not for you. Like, it's not for you. And maybe maybe that's okay. actually. Maybe we should be working toward a future where it's okay that things are not for you because there are many things and there's abundance and there's robust choices, although that's like a little bit too utopian. Um, But, you know, I feel like that sentiment usually comes from people who are like instinctively just like turned off by something and that that's like a very natural, like natural reaction to grasp and they just kind of deliver that. But sometimes it's born out of this like, well, this looks like it's not for me. So therefore I'm going to like be like, who's it for as a proxy for this just like not being fair in general. And it's just like, it just collapses a lot of stuff that's not like necessarily useful. So when people like sort of deliver that, like as much as it seems like asking who's it for is asking someone to unpack something, like I would kind of like people to unpack asking like, who's it for? Like, why would you ask that question? Is it meaningful? Can you do something with it? Or is it just like, to try to say that, like, oh, it's unfair, and I don't like it because it's unfair. Like, articulate why it's unfair. Have you ever been for whom in, in, in person at any point? It's happened to me once. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like uh, it's it's just brought up um, all the time in the debate on whether um, market rate housing is good for communities or good for the housing market. Or um, it, it kind of uh, bleeds into the kind of way that people view gentrification as like. Uh, a very cultural issue, like a primarily cultural issue. Um, it kind of annoys me in a way that is hard for me to put my finger on, but um, because it, it, I, I feel like it's kind of moving away from the basic question, which is, uh, does uh, more housing construction like help make housing cheaper or does it make it more expensive? Like I feel like that kind of thing, it, it, it kind of like... Um, uh, uh, obscures that question. I'll just say my story. Uh, it was a parking lot in Palo Alto being turned into underparked micro units, and I mean they're probably still going to be pretty expensive. But I, you know, I spoke in favor of it. And this kind of boomer who lives in Palo Alto, homeowner, came up to me like just afterwards, like after I was walking back from the podium, and says like, "Stop me!" He says, "You don't understand. This isn't for you. This is these are luxury units." <laughs> Which is just, it's nice. Uh, he, how wrong was he? <laughs> Micro units are exactly your thing. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> he has no idea I, who you are. I want coffin apartments. Yeah. Uh, but in, in right now it's a parking lot, so everyone's winning. Uh, but uh, so follow-up question, uh, Green New Deal for whomst? Um, right now I think it's for everyone in the same sort of brackets of categorical inequities that we already have, which is a very wonky way of referring to Doug Massey's work on categorical inequities, which I really like. He's a sociologist. Um, His book, Categorically Unequal, is something that I reference a lot to sort of show, like, he basically uses a lot of, like, data analysis and sociological research to, like, show what we all know, right? Which is, like, who is disadvantaged in what ways in the many sort of intersections going all the way down. So, you know, it's not so much that he's, like, ranking people on their demographics in an oppression Olympics-style thing, but is using, like, using actual data to show who is excluded from the workforce, what wages look like when you are, you know, a black woman or an Asian male, and what what that 
does. So it's very, like, very pulled back. You know, he, like, is, again, a sociology professor and is, this is totally data-driven. There are limits to what sort of analysis this can provide, but I find his work to be very useful. And thinking about things as categorically unequal has been very helpful for me in terms of how I tend to look at policy. Um, so the way that the Green New Deal is written right now, if we're talking about Data for Progress's white paper, which I think is the most green, zeitgeisty Green New Deal thing out there, even though there have been iterations of Green New Deal proposals in the past decade or so. I mean, to take a step back, yeah. Green New Deal right now, what, what is the 22nd version of people's? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Green New Deal, um, the idea that we could have a broad federal initiative to put people to work, um, drive economic stimulus, but you know, as opposed to the original deal, New Deal, have this have a huge, huge, huge sustainability component given the demands of climate change. So um, basically, the New Deal, but green. I mean, it's, so we're going to get cooked in 15 years. So wouldn't it be nice <laughs> if we can do that, but instead of it being a pain, we can also have it fix the economy too. Right. So it's just a win yes. for everybody in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yes. No. No. Uh, no sticks and all carrot. Basically. All carrot. No sticks. Um, so I think the way that it's written right now is, um, you know, it's good. There are ambitious climate goals in there that align with some of the agreements that the U.S. made as part of the Paris Agreement. I think all of that checks out. I'm going to get some of the numbers wrong, but it's you know certain targets for you know net zero like waste reduction like that kind of stuff. Definitely agree with all of the big high-level targets, and I do agree with the idea that that should be done in a legislative fashion so that it's a legal mandate rather than a policy proposal from a federal department. Um, so what what we're talking about is Data for Progress's report, which came out in 2018 specifically, even though the idea of a Green New Deal has been floated previously. And it's getting a lot more talk because the newly elected left-leaning representatives like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's a lot of ink Wait, about this out there. Who's that? I have, I've never heard of her. <laughs> uh, she, yeah, uh, just look up uh, look up dancing AOC, yeah. and you'll find. Oh, of, this is yeah. fantastic! She's stuff. a famous dancer in the in the discourse right now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it, so everyone is talking about the like, question: How are we going to pay for it? Blah blah blah. But I mean, there's a lot of talk. Do we need it? Yes or no? But there is, in fact, the predominant bulk of, of, of writings on it is a Green New Deal uh, put out last September. And this is kind of, what does it really mean? Because it is this kind of fancy phrase, but there are details to it. And you actually, <laughs> most people just talk about it like it's yay or, yay or nay. I read uh, the paper. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but I mean, you can actually talk a little bit more about like, what does it actually mean? And why are some people disappointed with some parts of it? And what does it do well? Um, so like I said, I think it hits the the broad targets and goals that fit both the Paris Agreement stuff and some of the mandates or not or the moral mandates, I guess, delivered by the IPCC report that came out in October. Um, so I'm I'm generally fine with it. I'm like terrible with numbers and it's not in front of me, so I'm not going to remember what some of those are. But, you know, as a white paper coming out of a think tank, like it looks about to me what I would expect. And so I think that there's some good content in there, and that's valuable. Um, I would say that it is certainly not, does not read as radical objectively. It's probably radical in comparison to what's out there currently in terms of 
climate goals and if it were passed as legislation would be very radical. I don't think in a vacuum it's that radical. I think there are serious questions about how socialist it is if you would like to have that conversation. And I think that like it doesn't, you know, for me, a big discussion that I was getting into is how it doesn't deal with land use and how fundamentally problematic it is to not talk about where we are spatially when talking about climate, which has a lot to do with where we live spatially. So Yeah, so let me, I guess, summarize, I guess, what might take uh, and tell me where I'm right and wrong. So <laughs> the Green New Deal says, here's a lot of cool goals we have. Let's be carbon neutral. Let's not emit carbon. Let's do all these things that we need to do. And then the second thing is, how do we do it? Let's find ways to inject capital into uh, communities to make green jobs. And we need more electric cars. I mean, and it sounds like the idea of the fact that our land use, our decentralized, sprawly land use that depends on cars, which is very, I guess, the the, the more the more spread out you are, the more it costs to do infrastructure. And it 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 there is inherently energy intensive things that come with it. And this these spatial things aren't really addressed. It seems like it's more addressed the fact we have communities and the idea that this could change is not even on the table. And some people have said, oh, urbanists are just want to stick their urbanist stuff in there. I suppose urbanists saying, no, actually, this is fundamental to the idea of a sustainable future. Well, what What is right? What is wrong in that take? I think that's generally broadly correct. Um, some of the particulars within that are are that, you know, the the sort of the the discourse as it were you know the sort of like one side was like yes electric vehicle vehicles are great however if what we're doing is just converting all of our existing infrastructure to green stuff like just making every car but electric cars then that actually helps considerably with climate change but it is not that great of a mitigator because doing a lot of the stuff that we're talking about over a sprawling landscape is very very challenging um and then you were sort of getting the other side, which was like, well, building is really energy intensive. And so, like, we should just, like, electrify, like, everything and, like, make sure everything is an EV immediately. I don't think that anybody on the, like, hey, let's talk about land use side was ever denying that. Right. I think that pretty much and myself included would say that, like, hey, like, yes, 100 percent. We should have electrified cars yesterday, years ago, decades ago. I believe electric cars were actually produced in like the early 20th century like we have the technology we should have stuck with that but like then there's the land use component which is just like sprawl is really expensive right if you have people sprawling like all across the country it's harder to deliver services to them you're still the electric cars are still running on roads which are impervious surfaces there's a lot of runoff there's a like there's a lot of chunks in the green new deal about land and you know forest restoration and like wetlands and stuff like that like those things don't become restored if you're continuing to build roads for your evs um i think that you know if in the world without climate change right like we would be able to talk seriously about everyone sprawling forever (laughs) but um that's not the world that we live in and so it you know it was troublesome to me to see that the sort of like again that spatial layout of the u.s was not addressed and I think, like, one of, like, I think the biggest sw- swings uh, and misses in in the discourse was the idea of saying everybody's talking about housing. It's just missing it. Housing, it takes a lot of energy to build housing. We just need to put 
no energy to building housing and put all of our energy into making uh, you know carbon neutral energy production like nuclear power plants. And I think one thing that's obviously missed is the fact if you're not building infill development in cities, it's not like people are not going to live in houses. We are going to build houses no matter what because people need to live under a roof. Right. It's it's it's, it's a choice. It's it's infill <laughs> or sprawl. It's not neither. Neither is not an option. Right. Um. I um. I have loudly declared on many platforms that I don't believe in degrowth, which is something that you see sometimes. Is this idea that uh oh we're just we're so busy we have so many people. What if we didn't have any more people? That seems to me a very, very, very bad approach to things that can only have negative consequences. Um, it's really weird how that is, how that is still a thing. People say like, we just need a lot of people to stop living. You know, is that's their solution to the environment? Or like, well, no more new people. We have enough in yeah, any yeah. sense. <laughs> I mean, I think the issue with degrowth is that it's it's just so vague, right? Like, um, it's really easy to look around at whatever tchotchkes our economy produces and be like yeah we could absolutely have less of this we could probably live a pretty good life if everyone worked a little less but like um you know if you're not very specific about what you mean by degrowth then you could be you know bleeding into like eliminationist rhetoric i think it's necessary population control and things like that well, I mean, part of it is saying, like, everybody deserves a nice big yard and a nice car and you drive it around, but the world can't sustain that. But I deserve it and everyone else, because it's usually the people who are enjoying these things that are strongest to say degrowth. It's Marine County. It's it's the Berkeley hippie types that are the most to saying degrowth should be our option. And Right. And they don't typically, I mean, this is not something that someone comes out as like, I'm a degrowth activist, but it's, you know, it manifests itself in sort of like, it's really difficult to park here. And so I think we have too many people here and we don't need any more. Or like, you know, oh, this restaurant is really crowded. There's lines for everything. Like we don't, we don't need any more, you know, restaurants that serve alcohol or like the sense that like, we don't need any more of X. And I think to Ollie's point that some of those things are benign right like maybe we do have too much stuff like okay that's a reasonable conversation to have but it's really easy for that to slip into like oh we have too many people (laughs) um and i think that that gets you in trouble so it becomes a turf war of saying who gets who gets our cities and it is saying we can't share our cities so we just need to make sure less people are doing it so people are going to be less inconvenienced by sharing yeah and it's just I think it's like no one ever, not no one, but a lot of people don't really try to. I said, you know, I talked earlier about like unpacking concepts. Like a lot of people don't really try to pull apart like what they mean when they say that. And it's just kind of a knee jerk reaction. And I understand it. I, on occasion, drive a car and it's very easy to complain about there not being enough parking. You know, is that a complaint that I make? No, because I know way too much about like how much free parking costs and why you should charge for parking and why charging for parking means that more parking is available because it's a demand based system. But like, I know all of that because I've like, worked in this world for a long time not like that's not like a natural thing for people to have in their brains and so like it's just it's a tough conversation to have especially when someone you know lives in a single family house and (laughs) drives to where they need to go it's very easy for them to say well you know I like my lifestyle a way for me to like you know, for the the lifestyle that I have, which I think is something that other people should want to have because I have it and therefore I think it's great, like, 
we should just make it green. Like it's like my life, but green. And so like that, you know, becomes, I think, that policy response. And so when you (laughs) I think this is one of the challenges in writing policy or trying to pass legislation is that you have to be really careful about like this is where the who's it for thing can actually be meaningfully applied is early on in that stage where if, if you're just writing legislation or a white paper for people like you, then like you're going to get in trouble. It's going to be reductive. So you have to think like you have to try to be somewhat creative with that or you should pull in people who can provide you with some insight, you know, that about like maybe that is about lifestyles that you don't lead because there's a lot. Everybody everybody is out there like doing many, many different things. And we do tend to self-segregate. And, you know, whether that's by race or by class or by like weird hobby, it's really helpful to go talk to people who don't live lives like yours, especially if you're trying to create a proposal for what would be a really broad federal mandate. It reminds me of, of, of my, one of my favorite tracks by the Noriegas, the band, the Atherton Climate Action Plan, a, a real document. And all these awful <laughs> cities that are just the most privileged cities, they put out this, what are we going to do about the environment? And it's always about, we need better wastebaskets or something like really, oh, yes. <laughs> just something like that is obviously not going to Solar powered in... recycling compactors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and uh, That will save us. But I mean, I think you talk about all these different things and I, I think a lot of people are driven by maybe maybe nostalgia, lethargy, and I think, you know, kind of what is a normal style of living. And you've talked a lot in the past about how much of how we live is driven by this ideas of normativity. And Yeah, um, it's like my favorite topic. <laughs> um, and I think that, um, you know, I, I, I've talked about this a lot. I mean, I bring up, I wrote this thing about adult dorms for sleep that I think I tried really hard to make this argument about, you know, Okay, so maybe these aren't for you, and maybe they don't fit the lifestyle that you expect other people to leave. Which is like, why, why, like, why are you expecting other people to lead a certain type of lifestyle? Like that kind of moral export is super weird, and is like very that's, high energy, and is how we do a lot of policy in this country. And that's what zoning is. Zoning <laughs> yes. is saying we only have one <laughs> right. style of living. Right, and and so you know, I I think that that really fundamentally bothers me about stuff like zoning, and like, um, and the sense that you know, the sense that like, oh, we can just everybody gets an EV, like without trying to understand like what that means. Like, what if you don't, what if you don't want to drive? So in like the fully electrified United States in year 2075, what if I still don't want to drive a car and bus service is still like super inequitable and like ignores a lot of neighborhoods and has really terrible headways and doesn't take me to my green job guarantee center, like where I go to get training for this job that I'm like guaranteed to work on solar panels with. Like that's not... Like, that's, like, replicating what we have now, but green. And frankly, that sucks. Like, I don't... That's not the world that I want to live in. Like, yeah, I do want high-frequency, clean buses running on a grid that can take people where they need to go. I also think that that is not just, like, my projection, right? Is that, like, that's... That is a moral imperative. And that's the kind of life that I would like to like people to be living. And frankly, science backs me up. Like... <laughs> Well, it's, it's weird, too, because, I mean, you have these suburbs and like suburbs tend to self-segregate into people who like living in suburbs. You know, this is. Yeah, but then again, you it's it infects our cities. I mean, our cities have this same suburban thinking. You know, it's you can't escape from it. You talk about this co-op style living. This is right in the heart of a major city. And it's still saying, no, people shouldn't live like that. 
Right. And this is not just like personal preference. I think there's a lot of preference in it, but it's also federally encoded. I mean, the federal highway system is responsible for urban sprawl. It is a federally driven sprawl program. We don't need to spend money on highways. That is a political choice. Highway spending is very popular for both parties. We spend money to build highways, even though Democrats do disproportionately over Republicans favor support for public transit. They also favor support for highways. Everybody likes highways. That's why we're building highways in 2017, 2018, 2019. We're Mm -hmm. building roads. That's crazy. Like, we should not be building roads if half this country is going to be underwater in 50 years. I mean, it's it's. It's funny to read about cities trying to figure out, okay, let's build, let's make our street streetcars work, let's make our cities work, and then suddenly, mid-50s, the feds come in and say, we'll pay 90% of the cost of highways. And that just absolutely changed the way our cities were, and we never looked back. Yeah. This is just permanently what we have now. I, I don't know if this is like, um, you know... Uh Super fringe uh, thought, or if this is historically it's accurate. It's a fringe podcast, so go yeah, ahead. Yeah, but uh, I heard that uh, part of their motivation for that was like it was like um, a national security thing. Like oh, yeah. they were worried about like you know the Cold War and stuff like that, so they wanted sprawl. That's explicitly in documents. Okay, for sure. And they also yeah. <laughs> the highways are built that you can land airplanes on. Oh because, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, none of that's crazy. <laughs> Oddly, like all your like for the most part, a lot of planning conspiracy theories are true. Um, that one included. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, you know, I, I think that like one of my other, like one of the other sort of like discursive tangles about the Green New Deal was that like land use is only local. Like, and I, you know, to a degree, a lot of land use decisions are, well, not even to a degree. Yes. Like tangible, discrete land use decisions are made at the local level. I mean, necessarily term, they like, happen locally. Yes, we functionally do have a local control system for land use, except the federal government has a huge role in that because it disperses funds to states and regions, which kicks off that planning process where you make those decisions at a local level. And without acknowledging that, then you totally miss like that we have done crazy like distributive, not redistributive, but distributive policy at the federal level through highways in terms of land and where people live and how it works and how they get around. So uh, for, for the federal funds, are you talking about like CDBG grants or, or is it more broad? It's highway funding. Oh, just, just yeah, highway okay. funding. You, we sure. can spend like six hours just talking about highway <laughs> funding. Um, but CDBG... All right, well, let's do it. <laughs> and, and what um, I live here now. <laughs> and and who, did this, who did this help? You know, the people who already had cars and moved out in these suburbs were helped and the people who were left behind in the inner cities who were, the, you know, not the first to get cars were the people this explicitly was not helping and was was there a racial and and class segregation to this absolutely there was yeah and so you know we have created a u.s in which you functionally have to drive driving will be your best option you live in manhattan or a few other places there are exceptions um (laughs) but for the most part yeah driving is like the most it's not only the most it's the most normative because it's the easiest thing to do and we favor that everything we do favors that um you know, I walked from the Caltrain station to get here because, like, I like looking at how stuff works. And so, like, I don't know what intersection I was at because all of the intersections are huge. Were but you it going took- to Palm Drive or were you... Wherever I was, it took me five minutes to cross as a pedestrian because I had to wait for all the cars to turn. So yeah. the priority there is drivers, not pedestrians. And we're like, oh, climate crisis. Like, 
the world's either going to be on fire or underwater. Like, yeah, greenhouse gas emissions have a huge like component of that. They do largely come from transportation. Converting to EVs will help measurably. That doesn't change the fact that if everybody is driving around on pavement, you're super unhealthy. It's really expensive. Like, it's just a bad, weak setup for like a world that is radically changing. Like, land is inherently political. We are talking about land. It is a political choice to use this it in is, certain ways. This is the Henry George program. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And when, when I lived on campus for a better part of seven, eight years, uh, I didn't have a car and. Like if I want to go to In and Out Burger, that was a that took a lot of work. I did that like once or twice and took like three hours of walking. You know, it's like that's a city. That's that. If you talk about inequities, the fact that there's fast food inequities, I think, is to me the most most visible thing. I know it's like it's it's it will, the best things in our society. It's it's you can live in a city and actually have things come to you. But I mean, around here, Santa Clara County is the biggest strip mall area in the world. It's 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 awful. Yeah, the uh, the land use situation around that. Caltrain stations is like straight up climate denial. Like, <laughs> so, so to transition to the fact, I guess I first saw you on Twitter because you were in Cleveland at the time and you were talking about urbanism in Cleveland, which you know perks my ears up because I'm from Cincinnati and I'm very interested in how what urbanism what can be done in these areas. And I mean, the short answer is it's it's if it's hard to do stuff here, it's harder there because. There is not only this implicit hostility, but a lot of explicit hostility too. But why don't you talk about your Cleveland experience? You know what? What are the biggest differences you see here versus other places? Yeah, so I think it's both easier and harder, if that makes sense, right? It's like one of the great existential frustrations that I had with being in Cleveland and with Northeast Ohio overall is that like they are 10 to 20 years behind. So in many ways, it's very easy to envision them just like skipping over the present and being 10 to 20 years ahead. Um, and I think a lot of that attitude like permeates a lot of stuff in Cleveland where everybody's so aware of the potential, but it's really hard to implement it because the government is very sclerotic. Um, you know, my experience with the Cleveland City Council was that they were not necessarily proactive in passing policy. Um, you know, Northeast Ohio's like political structure was pretty weak overall. Um, everything was founded by a foundation. So it was very much a situation where sort of philanthropy was doing the work of government, which is something that I find very troublesome. Um, so it felt like there were a lot of things to do. And just it felt incredibly difficult. But it was like you could see it. <laughs> and like in some ways, you know, I... It was like a different type of existential dread, like than living in the Bay Area when I lived here, um, because like in 2014, 2015 in San Francisco, like it felt like it was never going to get better. And I think that like watching sort of the the sort of like rising tide of housing advocacy, which is in many ways explicitly political, which I think is super important to any sort of movement. And I appreciate that. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people out here have recognized that um, rather than sort of trying to stick with the general sort of liberal coalition building kind of friendly back channeling um, that I think doesn't do anybody any favors, especially advocates when they're trying to push for a different world. Slight tangent to say that San Francisco in 2015, when I left, just like it felt like it was never going to get better. And it felt like I didn't have a place to plug into a lot of the housing stuff had not come online yet. Um, and so it just didn't, I felt like I didn't have a space here. And I was one of the people who was privileged enough to afford it. Um, so but, what, what was a deadlock you saw here that you don't see in Cleveland? Um, in Cleveland, it's just like, I think that potential is much more visible. It's hard to explain until you've been in, and Cincinnati has retained a lot of its like 
urban core in a way that Cleveland did not. I mean, mm. just like riding my bike on the east side of Cleveland, it was just like we have so much space and we have this grid and it's flat and like to me, you know, someone who recreationally walks from a train station to see how long it takes me to cross an intersection. Like to me, I was able to look at that and say like, oh my God, like we can take space away from cars and we can run really frequent buses and we can set up bike boulevards and like we can build places for people to live and have like all the green space that people claim they need when they want to like reject housing. Like we have space for it. Like we had the physical space. And like, that's not to say that like things in San Francisco felt different. It was a different context. They're not, this is kind of an apples oranges comparison, but like it felt like it was possible in Cleveland in part because it was cheap and there was space and everybody like when you deal with like an art scene, like people will always tell you like, Oh, affordable art space is really hard to come by. And like, I got out there and like was like try, you know trying to do some of this stuff and it just felt like it did feel really existentially hopeless. It was like you hit a wall everywhere you turned with someone who was just like things will never change. This is the way that it is. Like and politicians were really sclerotic and you know my council member was way more focused on constituent services than trying to like pass the rewritten complete streets legislation that I gave him, you know, like that kind of stuff. And it was just like these like kind of continued microaggressions of just like, ah, Cleveland, like, this is like so difficult. Um, I wrote this blog post called like emotional labor in the Rust Belt and it bounced around more than I expected. And a lot of people were like, this totally explains how I feel this sense of like having to like in the more um, like traditional sense of emotional labor of having to display outwardly a sort of sense of community and love for a place that is deeply broken in order to both further your career and accomplish your goals or your project deliverables or whatever, um, which is, you know, sort of the sense of emotional labor, which was initially written about airline stewardesses who had to sort of moderate and modulate their facial expressions and their behavior to make their passengers feel comfortable. Um, that is how living there felt. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that like it felt like you had to not scare people in order to get things done but then things weren't getting done and then like when there was like you know if we were protesting about public transit or trying to like get somebody different elected it just like felt like everyone was super sclerotic and really depressed so you said <laughs> so something something uh, tangible you said was it complete streets is the, what you said or what was the name of this document you said you produced in cleveland so complete streets is uh smart growth america's term for streets that accommodate all users. I have another six hour rant that I have is about like the sort of like problematic stuff around complete streets, which I wrote about for Strong Town, so that's out there. Um but the sense that a street should accommodate all road users and pay disproportionate weight to vulnerable road users. Lots of cities have implemented Smart Growth America's style complete streets policy as a result of SGA's advocacy. Um, and so Cleveland has one. There were things that I wanted to change to it. I rewrote the legislation and sent it to my council person, and then it just kind of like sat there. Um, in part because I'm actually not entirely sure that the council knew how to introduce policy work and shop a bill through, which is just like something that like I'm familiar with, but I realized it's actually not something that lawmakers are doing in the city. Like, I mean, I, I think you talk about like the potential, and I think this is kind of it's good and it's really, really bad and scary is like around here, you go up and down El Camino and this, the street, the intersections are so big. Everything feels like, unless you actually just put 
you know, you actually just tear up the road and put houses in the middle. Like it's it's never going to get that much better. But when you go to a place where there's roads that have been around since the 1860s, like those are pretty much ready to go as far as good urbanism is. But the problem is when you change stuff like that, it's, you know, the reason that they're still preserved is the fact that they've been undercapitalized. And it, it means inherently, oh, if you're going to make a good urbanism, you are displacing these communities that are currently right now clinging on to this area. And like, well, what, what's the way forward? And I mean, <laughs> well, so Cleveland is a little bit. I so every city does this where it's like, OK, like we're exceptional because we're this place and we have this problem and lots of places have similar problems. So Cleveland's a little bit different from what you're describing. That's kind of Cincinnati thing I'm describing. Yeah. Like I said, Cincinnati kept a lot of um, its urban core, whereas Cleveland actually um, took the most urban renewal dollars in the United States and completely just like wrecked itself with demolition um, and continued to do so through the 90s as Mm. a practice. Um, Cincinnati lost one big neighborhood, the West End, but like over the Rhine and, you know, North Side, all these different areas are still preserved and are still really interesting, you know, vibrant areas for that reason. Right. And so the it's a it's a it's not an easy conversation. I don't think that any city in the U.S. is getting the sort of like quote unquote revitalization question right I think it's a it, like it's an it's like an unpleasant and unfun thing to talk about because it puts us in this position where like anything new gets called gentrification and then we don't you know we don't have a meaningful like policy response to like okay how do we like how how do we deal with growth how do we deal with development which to me are like intractable like we're going to get them because the opposite is degrowth and we already talked about why I think that's bad so like in my worldview, like you're going to grow. But has anybody dealt with that in an effective way? Like, no, not really. So that's where you get cities being super freaked out about Amazon. Like when that sort of lead up to the Amazon announcement, like people were totally freaked about it because the experience that we have come to expect of new jobs coming to a place and new infrastructure coming to support it is that everybody else is just going to get priced out and have to go. And that, you know, that actually may not like I don't have like the regression results on whether or not that's actually true and like how many people get to stay in their homes despite like a new employer coming. That actually doesn't matter because like the narrative that we have is that new stuff comes and then you can't afford it. And that's going like that used to be a problem for just like not just I don't want to say it used to be a problem for people who were poor, but it's now affecting people who like me are, you know, upper middle class white with college degrees with a certain level of cultural competency who are able to like have this conversation and say that like this is bad for me and so it's hit this like popular narrative um there was a new york magazine piece from like a few years ago that was like people like like we hear about gentrification in the media because like people who work in media like are experiencing deleterious effects of gentrification and so like they opine about it and that essay got kind of lambasted i it was goofy i also think it's totally true is that people with platforms are now able to like articulate like oh my god i'm experiencing like housing instability and the idea that my wages won't cover like the basic necessities of my life in a way that like historically has been restricted to the very poor and that that is starting to affect people who have more of a platform and can articulate it and like that that's why you're actually seeing that and that it is something it's it's good we should be talking about this but like um it is funny how that strain of thought i think has accompanied sort of a rising sort of tightness or squeeze on not just like the middle class but again the sort of 
what I say is like culturally competent, culturally privileged people who can who tend to navigate white collar situations, like all of a sudden they're making six figures, but they like can't afford the Bay Area. I think it's kind of interesting. If you look at stuff like 100 years ago, it seems a lot more like what we're seeing today than stuff in between, uh, largely because cars kind of kicked the can down the road for 100 years. Because for when things grew for most of the 20th century, the the normal middle class people are all safely tucked away in you know kind of the outer reaches where they never really got squeezed. They're kind of Things are happening. It's not their backyard. Uh, but before that happened, when everyone was in the urban core, I was like reading stuff saying the specter of rising land values are going to disrupt all of our communities because everybody was landless. Everybody, very few people were in the homeowning class at that time because that's it's that's the way cities were. That's kind of why suburbs became so popular. You can stop doing that. And that worked for 100 years as far as getting people safety and stability. But we're kind of reaching the end of the road. We've saturated a lot of our, you know, our deepest metros. The fact there isn't the idea, oh, yeah, just get a nice suburban place a little bit down the road. If you're in the Bay Area, that's a two-hour drive each way. Right. And I think with cities in the sort of period of um, really distressed and declined or, like, declining urban spaces was that, like, oh, like, my rent's too expensive. I can, like, move, like, two blocks over. Like, they're, you know, like... But that wasn't because those were healthy, like, I don't, not, like, healthy markets, but not because those were, like, healthy places, right? It, was it because, wasn't like, a, wasn't functioning well. Right, it but... wasn't functioning well. And so people, you know, okay, we're living in cities, and it was really cheap, and we sometimes glorify, like, what it was like to live in New York in the 70s and 80s and San Francisco in the 90s and D.C. at various points in time. But the, at Did, the time, like, it was considered failure of urbanism. It was considered, you know, just our cities rotting from the inside out. Well, I think it also takes a certain level of privilege to live in a city with that lacks services and and glorify that um you know cleveland in many ways is still is is that like i often tell people it's like oh you want to live in dc in the 90s and like you want to buy a single family house with a yard like go to cleveland ohio you're not going to be able to find a job that meaningfully satisfies you but like yeah i you know there that world exists um there was like a sinkhole on my street that didn't get filled in for like two years. Um, once I, I like this is I'm no longer there, but I've been seeing like, you know, people's power is going out like weekly plus like through like the Cleveland public power system. Like this is like Muni Light, which became Cleveland public power is like long been very, very troubled like by like service stuff. Um, it sounds so authentic and so real. It sounds so authentic and so real. And so and so like I but it really takes a certain level of privilege to live in a place with that, you know, without strong services and say oh my god like this is like not not even how wonderful but like to be able to reflect on that and say like oh my god it was amazing it was so cheap like yeah sure like my house in cleveland my mortgage was 1400 a month like how, how wonderful to be living in a walkable neighborhood like with a front porch and a backyard for that much money per month but i lost my job and i wasn't finding another one and so i left and also like that's a very different calculation. Like for me, that's a very, I had a very different standard of life than someone whose wages were continually not covering their cost of housing. It was living in a very unstable housing situation, sort of determined by a landlord, probably on the east side of Cleveland in a place that was probably riddled with lead because Cleveland has no mitigation plan. So like I, 
yes, it's great that cities were cheap. <laughs> um, but like that came at, I think, a very, very great expense. And we often when, you know, people write urban history or sociology books, like they often talk to people who are available to them to talk to, which comes through certain levels of networks. And that also privileges people who have a certain level of access, which means like what you end up with sometimes is a lot of glorification of that or, or like an oh my goodness, it was so affordable kind of thing. And I think like people left cities for suburbs if they could afford it. Like a, 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 like a statistic that's crazy to me is I think that like pretty much like there's no black family or no black households in Cleveland like per census data like that make over $50,000. Like if people can leave decline, they will. They will choose to leave. They will take their dollars elsewhere. They will leave for schools. They will leave for services. They will leave to not be in a house riddled with leads that the city is not at all interested in mitigating. So like... That's yeah. You have people who move to the suburbs because cities were terrible to them, <laughs> and um, and I think that's that's the that's the hardest challenge of urbanists is saying we want cities to work when making suburbs work is so much easier at least to start. It's hard to kind of keep it going and make it sustainable. But if you if you are able to pollute, able to get cars, able to get road funding for the feds, certainly. Suburbs are so you can't screw up as easily. Where cities are in the best of circumstances really really hard. I think they're really we have made cities being hard a political choice. Like I don't think that it should be politically difficult to run better bus service and yet it is. Yeah. And it is a massive massive battle that is fought on a bunch of like racial and cultural and moral and ideological grounds to increase Bus frequency. Like, <laughs> I want to throw this in here. I was just reading. I'm reading about the failed Cincinnati subway and some lines in here of just the 20th century of people in Cincinnati government just hating public transit just on principle. People who like that's their platform is I hate buses. And this is one of the mayor, Mayor Ken Blackwell, in 1980 was in an anti-tax campaign. He he opposed a permanent transit tax, stating a 1980 plan counting heavily on buses. Maybe a lot like an 1880 plan, counting on horse-drawn carriages to be 20th century needs. Uh, he said by 1925, buses would be outmoded and people would use moving sidewalks. So, and that was the mayor of, of Cincinnati in 1980. I don't know. It's just, I mean, there's it's I, actually the moving sidewalk idea is at least forward thinking. <laughs> yeah, that actually sounds really cool. <laughs> I mean, that sounds awesome. It's not going to happen. But well, I mean, scooters are like you have your own slice of the sidewalk and it moves, sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that how that works? <laughs> I mean, you can't, and that's what the hyperloop is here now. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, Elon Musk's going to fix urbanism. Everything's going to work. It's, it'll be easy and painless. But like, how often do you face people who just hated buses in Cleveland? A lot. And even like a lot of people who took transit there would take the train. And so their preference was the train, not buses. Like, mm. buses are seen as like slow and for poor people and scary. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, which sucks because they're super efficient. <laughs> like, mm. um, yeah, it's like easy to expand. You don't have to deal with all the land. Easy to expand, politics. easy to move. You can, I mean, the one land politic thing that comes up is like dedicated bus lanes, which we should just, sure, yeah. in, in, in world of climate crisis, we should have them everywhere immediately. That is not hard to do. Um, but yeah, people really don't, people don't like buses. And it's, it's like they'll express it as like, I don't really like the bus. Like, I'm not super comfortable with it. I prefer to take the train. And there's like, where you're to unpack that, there's a bunch of different reasons that lots of people offer. I think some of them are above board and well-intentioned and some of them like lean towards kind of racist and bigoted um but yeah sure i will accept that like 
for people who are able to conceptualize like rail networks, which sometimes is a little bit easier than bus networks, often transit maps like the rail lines are way easier to read than the bus lines. Like rail is perceived as more reliable because it's fixed and permanent and the trains ostensibly come more reliably because they don't get stuck in traffic. But we could make buses just as reliable. Buses are great. I love buses. <laughs> Cincinnati trains get stuck in traffic. They built this downtown streetcar, took 30 years, and now they just ride behind cars. Yes. I mean, that's the same case with the D.C. streetcar. But once again, that's a, that's a political decision. Not, oh, it's yeah. not necessarily a planning decision. Like that, The decision to not give it a dedicated lane, physically dedicated lane that was then enforced, is like 100% a political choice. I think that goes back to like... It's like, you know, I, we we treat cities like they're really hard and we treat housing like it's really hard and we treat transportation like it's really hard. And like, I'm not saying that the stuff is like, oh, like you just like flip a switch and it's fine. But like we put energy into stuff, right? Like there, like there's plenty of people in positions of power that are putting their energy into whatever they might want to put their energy into. There's not really an interest or an imperative or like people have not wrapped their brains around like why it's important to do like city stuff, whether that's housing or transportation or even, you know, public health or what have you. So like it's just easier like like I said, most, or did I say this already, but most Americans live in suburbs and in America are suburbs sprawl. They're not gridded suburbs around transit stops. They're cul-de-sacs. And so like when you're coming from that, like that's what you think the world is. Like that's what you think the norms are. And so even though like, yes, lots of people live in cities, most Americans live in suburbs, most suburbs sprawl. People think it's weird that you don't drive somewhere. That's why car ownership is aspirational. Like when you talk to people who are riding the bus, they're kind of like, mm, I would, in many ways, prefer not to be doing this. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I mean that it's not just uh, people's uh, experiences growing up; like it's embedded in American pop culture. Like, you know, if you ask someone who's in like Russia who has never lived in a single family house what a house looks like, they'll just draw like a Simpson style like single family house. Yeah, it's it's totally totally wild that like. Our cultural export is like so crazy. I'm trying to think, like, if a movie, if someone is getting on a bus in a movie, it means they're hitting hard times. You know, things aren't working well for them. <laughs> I'm trying to think: has there been a neutral occasion at any time recently? Someone gets in a bus because they just want to get to somewhere. I don't. It's it's everything's so loaded culturally, and I guess that's a question: is are, is this a cultural battle to be fought primarily, or what? Like, in if it is a cultural battle, what do we do about it? Can you fight a culture war? Well, I think, I mean, this is a question for, like, advocacy a lot, right? And, like, my day job is advocacy. <laughs> and and so I think that historically, like, we have said we need to change hearts and minds, right? Is that we want to tell a really great story that convinces people that our worldview is worth attaining. And we want them on board with our mission. Hopefully they give us money so we can pursue that. Um, and I think... You know, there's been a long history of advocacy preferring marketing to advocacy. <laughs> um, and that, you know, I to my comment of like, it's been interesting for me to watch like the San Francisco housing advocacy work has acknowledged that this stuff is explicitly political in ways that the DC region has not. Or we in DC will talk about it being explicitly political, but we're very timid in some ways. Um, and that we do prioritize relationships and the capacity to, you know, work those relationships in our favor. When you and, say political, do you mean it's people knowing that people are going to work with their self interest as opposed to just saying, let's get, you know, fun ideas out and we'll all we'll it's all win? That fundamentally elected officials set the priorities. Like planners don't. So, mm. you know, for the for the Green New Deal, right? 
Like, Data for Progress is not doing the Green New Deal. The only way that that happens is if someone writes legislation and it gets introduced, and then we start figuring out how to implement it. That's not, like, you can write as many white papers as you want. Like, fundamentally, it doesn't matter until somebody has, like, a level of power that they get a hold of it, and then they can actually do something with it. Yeah. So, like, I always try to think about that. But, you know, to to, like, to, to your point of, like, mm, like, can we change this? Like, how do you, is it a culture war? Like... Yeah, it's a culture war. It's also like you can just make a choice and that can change the culture. Like I really firmly, firmly believe in that. And so like we can make a chance to override some of that. Like we have a chance to override some of that conditioning. I think that like the moment that we're in right now is very interesting because we do have, like I said, a sort of moral mandate from the IPCC report to do things very, very differently. And we can we're going to choose not to. Like, I think that, like, we're already, like, we're doomed. Like, we're like, like, I am like, like, I have no designs on this being like a positive outcome, but like, we can try. We can say we tried. (laughs) We're willing to do whatever it takes, but we're not willing to give up free parking or any of the other things we enjoy. Some things are off the table. That's a human right is free parking. Well, uh, what I want to know is, uh, do, do you think that uh, given the tools and the resources that the federal government has, uh, could a, could this version of the Green New Deal or another version uh, like override the local political uh, obstacles and the cultural conditioning? There, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that you would have to write it really strategically. It would be very challenging. It's going to require a lot more um, sort of research and consideration on how land use politics works, which that document, like, and I will criticize this over and over, does not address at all. Mm-hmm. Like, it says, like, I work for a smart growth organization. I'm obligated to nod to the fact that it says smart growth once, which is great for yes. us. Um, that said, it doesn't talk about land use in this fundamental fashion. And, like, I do really believe that it, you know, where we put places <laughs> and we do make choices to put places on the map mm-hmm. that that is like that undergirds all of this stuff i mean if you're talking again like or we maybe we were having this like sidebar discussion is that this dfp's proposal reads a little bit like a jobs guarantee and i 100 percent support that but it's wild to me to read something that's a jobs guarantee about green jobs that doesn't talk about spatial mismatch, which is this idea that, like, you live somewhere, but your job's really, really far away. Like, we don't put jobs near people, in part because of zoning, in part because of corporate choice. Like, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole intersection all the way down of, like, why jobs are not near people. And you have people living in San Francisco commuting to the peninsula, or you have people living in, like, Western Maryland commuting to D.C. or from Southern Maryland commuting to D.C. or Northern Maryland commuting to or like Pennsylvania commuting to Baltimore or whatever. Um, so to have a jobs guarantee that also purports to be a redistributive document that's ostensibly going to redress like the racism and inequities like in some ways instituted, like enshrined further in the original New Deal and not talk about spatial mismatch, which disproportionately affects like poor people and people of color because their jobs tend to be very far and they pay less, um, is totally weird to me. So (laughs) there's a lot going on there, right? I think like this document reads as like, it's like, first, it's a jobs program. Second, it's a climate thingy. And third, it says there's an equity section. So, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know really what the goal is. Um, it seems to try to hit all of those things. And I don't, it's not so much that it tries to hit all of those things and not do it very well, but it's trying to do a lot without pulling apart like the, like what it means to meaningfully do 
all of that stuff and then try sending it back together. That's a really, really hard task, right? So, do you have like a wish list? If you were to see concrete things that you could just <laughs> pop into a doc like this, what would you? What what would be like a realistic or even what's a more ambitious thing that you'd want to wish into existence in a in a Green New Deal? Uh, the most ambitious thing is rewriting it to account for a lot of that land use stuff. Um, because but what's what's a, like a concrete? There's not. That's that's the issue. Yeah. Like I mean, what we didn't talk about with land use is that it is feels like it feels very much like an intangible to a lot of people. Like what is land use? Like I phrase it as like where we put stuff, where we put places, where we put people, because we do we do en- engineer that through policy in a fashion. But like, you know, it's this weird question where like all transportation policy is land use, but not all land use is transportation. Like it has to do with housing too. Like, um, and it has to do with like, you know, different like I'm like falling down on this point kind of. But like, there's a lot of stuff that goes into land use. It's not just zoning laws. It's not just how we plan our transportation. It's like where do we put stuff and how do we put it in places and where do people live and what does that look like? And so I don't think that you can do this without talking about that, given the both the targets in there and sort of the objective of it to be both a jobs guarantee and redistributive. I just don't think that you can do that. But that's because land use is really hard. So there's not like a thing that you can slide in there and say like, oh, this fixes it. And especially at this point in time when we're talking about a big visioning document and we should be talking about the who it's for and what are the consequences kind of thing, like this is the time to start having those really big discussions. I mean, I think it's kind of an indictment on advocates like myself for not doing a better job of helping people in power understand like just how fundamental that land use stuff is because it makes people nervous. It makes them look at their lifestyle and have to kind of defend it. (laughs) And like, you know, we've enshrined the single family house and driving a car to work, a really nice car to work as aspirational, asking people to, you know, think about the consequences of their actions when those are just so part of their life and probably what they worked really hard for is not easy. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't blame anybody for not wanting to address that. And I don't blame generations of advocates for not wanting to call that out because it's an unpleasant process. So, so why don't you respond like this, like a hypothetical. One thing we want to do is to get our cities <laughs> clear of cars. What if like San Francisco just set up basically a, you know, a force field saying no cars enter the city. <laughs> there are taxis, there are, you know, u- Ubers and buses. I mean, there's all these transports within the city, but you can't drive into San Francisco anymore. And I think people say that's one way. That's effectively the same as a congestion tax. Uh, but then people would say, well, everyone outside the city now lacks equity to commute to the job center inside the city. Like, how how do you navigate? You know, this is kind of a fanciful hypothetical, but it's close to real policies you could have. What do you say to people saying you can't block cars from the city because I'm being hurt now? Well, I mean, I think, like, sure, like, one way to do it is to block it and make it a mandate. I think like the congestion cordon idea is probably a little bit like easier to talk about because like then we can say like okay like if you make if you're in this tax bracket you pay this much right like it's not perfect we can massage that out like that's like that's the implementation part of this income income tax based congestion taxes sorry not or like or you can do income based okay like we can this is okay so my point about this is like I actually don't want to talk about this because this is implementation and that's very different than visioning. Sure. And the document that we're that you are holding is visioning, not implementation. It's not discrete policy like let me tell you how to do it. And so I get really like intense about this stuff because if you don't have really strong goals when you start, then like it's just going to fall apart. So when you like what you need is that sort of like 
foundational belief that reflects like what's supposed to be in this document. I don't want to like totally slam the authors. Like I think like they 100% believe in what they put on paper. And so, you know, I would hope that going forward that like any sort of legislation or policy designed to implement that stuff is like reflects those original goals. So you always have to be returning to that document. You have to stay really, really honest about like what you put in there. So like right now we're working on that big picture thing. And so it's really important to make sure that those goals and stuff are in there. So when you start talking about hypotheticals like congestion cordons or car force fields or whatever, that like you can start connecting those dots and actually making things that work. So not so whether it's income based charging for like a congestion cordon or it's give like people who don't make a lot of money like I don't like totally or I guess in this situation I would also like transit to be free I don't know like you know that's actually like not super interesting to me as dismissive as that sounds but like because I have seen so many plans that are like weak ass plans basically like that have like not really been able to hold on to themselves throughout that implementation process um and we do a lot of planning centralized planning is actually really valuable you it like having to retrofit can be very expensive so like you do want to be strong from the offset without doing that and without recognizing like some of the things that are actually driving the reasons why we're here in the first place like then it's almost not super helpful to talk about like what are some of the really cool and innovative policies that you could start implementing. I mean, do we need do we need more people? Like this is a very smiley face. Everyone <laughs> everyone can win. You know, we can we can have our cake, eat it too. We have these clean jobs that are great and then we fix everything and nothing ever gets bad ever ever everywhere. Uh, I mean, but I guess the question is, what I'm thinking is, what is my vision? My vision would be, one, we have to share our cities. Is that going to be tough? Yeah, it's going to be really freaking tough. We need to actually account for the fact that pollution is something we get for free that we should be paying for. Is that tough? That's incredibly tough. Is it going to be painful? All of this is going to be incredibly painful. Does it need to happen? Absolutely. It's a bare minimum. I mean, but is is that just, should you just shut up if like all you have is to be kind of gloomy and say, we need to eat our vegetables? I don't know. Well, okay. So so I think that, so, tra- so trade-offs are real. And I don't ever like to talk about policy without talking about trade-offs because like you do have to lose, right? I don't, there, there are situations in which you are growing the pie. And then there are situations in which like the pie is not going to get any bigger with work. We're working what, with what we've got. And that's where that redistribution question comes in. I talk about That's what this. socialism is. That's what socialism is. I find a very good example of this to be literal physical streetscapes, not unlike the complete streets thing. You know, it's like you look at a roadway and it's pretty much like 100% dedicated to cars, right? It's cars, parking, there's a sidewalk. I would not count the sidewalk as part of the roadway. So let's say the street is 100% cars. Cars have won. Cars have won. Um, so like redistributing <laughs> space on that street means taking space away from cars. Like you are literally taking space away from something. You are taking something away from something. And That's that is, why bus lanes are socialism. <laughs> bus lanes are... Well, depending on who you talk to, they're also gentrification. So be careful. Um, so like... Um, but, you know, my point is that when you have something that has a very large share of whatever asset you're working with, then, like, yes, you have to redistribute it. But streets where the bus has dedicated space and people can safely bike and safely walk, maybe you expand the sidewalk and you put in bike lanes and maybe you even get some bioswales or, like, at the very least, you get a dedicated bus lane, that street actually works better for a lot more people because more people can ride a bus than drive cars. And presumably, in this really wonderful hypothetical that I'm laying out, the bus is running frequently enough that people are choosing to 
ride that over driving their car in our future gas should be a lot more expensive parking should be a lot more expensive your car should be a lot more expensive um so you know it's not so much i think a really important point is that like yes trade-offs are real people will have to give things up it will be painful and it will be difficult to go through that change however again beautiful utopian future you you may find that that's a good thing you might find that you enjoy vegetables like brussels sprouts are delicious carrots are delicious like you might actually enjoy that um we just don't give ourselves it's hard to illustrate that to people without them actually you know it's hard to tell that story and it's hard to like you know i know i said that like advocacy i think has leaned more towards being a marketing campaign than actually trying to move the needle sometimes in that way telling that story and illustrating that can be really helpful it's instructive when people can ride bikes and feel safe rather than ride bikes and feel threatened and that helps them understand why you might want to install bike lanes. Doesn't always stick in my experience with that advocacy side. However, to your point, you know, are we doomed to be miserable? Like, yes, things will have to change. That process will be painful. The outcome, I don't think, has to be so awful. Yeah, I, I think uh, we should be careful when we're talking about trade offs and like how much it's going to hurt because, um, especially uh, when I think about the Green New Deal and the context that. Um, the the people who are working on this kind of stuff are coming from um a lot of us are trying to learn hard lessons from like the obama years and like uh how does uh policy and politics uh, how do they affect each other and um i mean you you have to uh basically make sure that your programs don't have a significant political backlash otherwise what's the point of a green new deal if you pass it people's lives start getting harder and then four years down the road you get uh kicked out of office by you know baron trump or or Ivanka or something you know <laughs> well if, you know obama you talk about the fact is why not swing for the fence if you're going to do this revenue neutral win-win healthcare plan and people are still going to take out the pitchforks you might as well try for something more ambitious yeah exactly you're going to get called a commie either way <laughs> Right. And I think that that goes back to that sort of question about visioning is that you should be very firm and hard and aggressive and hard to your ideological side when you propose something mm -hmm. so that that implementation, when you start going through that implement, like implementation process, which is very different than the sort of idea generating like big policy thing, is that you can consistently loop back to that and say, are we satisfying these goals? Um, but I think you're right to bring up like what happens like i mean in some ways our system is like set up to like it's it's easier to override executive power than i think our common narrative leads us to believe and so if somebody's looking for a way to do that i don't think it's terribly difficult so part of part of the sustainability question is like how do you make your policies sustainable right it's mm. like and how do you make your policies resilient to that kind of change those are we should be talking about that not just with like how do you make places sustainable and resilient to change but how do you make the laws that get them there yeah I, I even think like the framing of this uh, as the green new deal is already trying to bake that resiliency into it like by design rather than just like framing it as like uh you know like a carbon tax which is right. just gonna like you know punish consumers or something like that right and there are definitely like there are strong goals in this document right. like there are there are good things that should be on paper they just like if you ask me i'm like well they need to talk about land use and i think it's fundamental um which is i think why you had me on this podcast as yeah. a person who thinks that land use is fundamental <laughs> so as far as visioning goes uh you put a poll up on twitter saying what should i study while i'm on vacation in california <laughs> and the the winner uh i mean uncon uncontested uh georgism was, was a winner <laughs> is, is georgism part of 
like how does that fit in visioning? Because I feel like there is it is this weird hybrid of you know kind of the pure socialism of it's all about finding the people, the billionaires, and soaking them, and then there is the grow the pie side. And I mean, you kind of need a vision that has them both because there there needs to be redistribution and there needs to be sustainable ways that we actually all win. But I, I think that this document maybe only has the grow of the pie side. Yeah. So thank you for exposing like how much of a dork I am. And like, <laughs> did you get all of your like group chats to stack my votes That's in favor of Georgia? I, 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 I was like not. I was not campaigning. I will. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh. <laughs> um, no, I think it's a really interesting question, and it 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 also goes back to some of the um, what's advocacy and how does it work stuff. Um, is that I think a lot of a lot of the organizations that I've been a part of have tried to find um, like the sort of like third way average middle and it just makes like everybody unhappy like I mean that's that's Obamacare it's this weird triangulated <laughs> version that right. just like people who say we need a change like boy this is lame and then people who don't like it are like they think it's you know it's it's the French Revolution again right so I do not like the third way as a concept or a think tank um so you know the th- that idea like just does not work really well for me because while I think like yeah we're all adults and we can compromise like a lot of times that compromise is done in a way that does not like it actually doesn't get it doesn't get back to your goal right it, you end up in this compromise that's in service of compromise not whatever the goal is yeah and then the goal becomes compromise not the thing that you're trying to compromise on which is like yeah weird and then again everyone is unhappy so and to- it, it also it, it rewards people for staking out if you are the bus hater then yes. they get a 30 percent of the vote is the bus, bus haters hater, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i i you know i view sort of like the georgism thing as kind of like another planet <laughs> which is like but that's like preferable right because it's like this is another world that's possible like this is another system this is another structure that actually meets the needs that we're talking about like does it satisfy the goal then like yeah we should talk seriously about pursuing that and what the implementation for that looks like like what do you need to make that a reality so like in terms of like how do you pack those two things together i think it's less like okay well like let's take out like a tiny piece of this part and a tiny piece of this part so that they're more equal or whatever in this like compromise rather than going to it as like we're compromising for compromises sake like trying to say like oh actually we have this ideological structure that maybe we could just try to work in some of those tenants and leaving aside the compromise piece and just saying like okay cool like we actually have a available roadmap to us maybe we should try it yeah i mean i think if you talk about you know what is the way forward people right now have a lot of they have a vote that is tied to where they are in society in their you know land ownership rights in the suburbs and it's kind of what do you do with this proper property rights and i think we've we've largely reached a deadlock you know it's it's kind of what are people in the suburbs willing to give up and it's not much end of story and this is where a lot of people have just ended well i think a way forward with that is not building any more highways and <laughs> like no, like seriously like yeah. people ask me this like fairly frequently and like it's like oh what would you do like what would you do and it's like just not build any new highways stop funding them don't build them like work with what you've got yeah. so like sure like actually it's like there's your there's your different reality is like we don't build roads anymore and in fact like we need to infill development wise in terms of the building housing side what we already have like stop like that like degrowth but for sprawl <laughs> and, and do and do the infill stuff and talk very seriously about what it means to make those places work like that's the whole retrofitting the suburbs argument that ellen dunham jones has made for a very long time in her work which is like well we have these sort of like dead malls and stuff so like 
why don't we start talking about retrofitting them? But that, in some ways, seems almost futile if we're just going to keep building more of those things that are going to die. So, like, don't don't do that. Like, just stop it and then work with what you have. <laughs> I mean, that's it's 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 pragmatic politically because it is creating pain, but not through action. When you when you create pain through action, <laughs> then people are like stop doing that. But if you just stop doing something that creates pain, at least it's right. a sin of omission. <laughs> no, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Elon uh, Levy has uh, he wrote a, a quick thing on the Green New Deal uh, and uh, its relationship to transportation, which I don't think it uh, th- does. This paper talk much about transportation? Not too much. There's the sense that we should be um, riding electric buses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I, just uh, to back up uh, what we've been talking about. One of the first things he says is, um, so we spend about. Uh, $300 billion uh, over five years on um, transportation costs at the federal level, and uh, $50 billion of those 300 goes to um, public transit, and $200 billion goes into highways. So basically, one of the first things he says is just stop. Just no more money for highways. Yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but if you talk about most people in the world, if you say, like, okay, we're going to put more into making our cities work, it's like, I don't live in a city. You know, I'm in the suburbs. And I guess how do you make the political coalition if if so many people have been, de- you know, just flung out away from the place where transportation makes the most sense? I mean, at this point, like, okay, so if we really take IPCC is like 12 years, like, you have 12 years to get it together, seriously, then, like, you don't have time to build a coalition. You don't. And, like, yes, people need to be made comfortable. I agree with that in the sort of scenario where we have luxury, like, of of, of the luxury of doing that. But, like, I don't think that we do. And that, like, that is the thing that kills me with a lot of these, like, climate discussions is that, like, we talk about it as as if we're in, like, normal healthy timeline. And, like, we've been doing, like, we've been kicking the can down the road for decades. Like, environmentalists were saying this stuff in the 70s. I have my issues with 70s-era environmentalists now, but they were not wrong about oil and about climate change. And so, like, this sense that, like, we can do the sort of traditional sense of, like, or the traditional like coalition building and making people feel comfortable and getting people on board and lining up allies is like this is like this is where my I this is something that I tweeted was that like you know the issue with centralized planning like was not Robert Moses like Robert Moses was the problem or no I'm getting this wrong it's just like Robert Moses was the problem like not centralized planning right like we are looking at a scenario in which like the urgency is like I like this this like very much keeps me awake at night like to like to like the mental health level of the climate thing is like tough for me like I can't read about it because it freaks me out <laughs> and like um and I know what I need to know about it which is that we're totally screwed and we're gonna lose and um so to me that is so very different than where things were five years ago like not just for me personally but like on the discursive level of like looking at natural disasters you guys just had it in a wildfires it hasn't stopped raining in DC and now the ground's so saturated that things are flooding and um you know people are having like real hypothetical like these conversations where like the party hypothetical conversation is like oh where are the climate refugees gonna go like when like all the big cities are underwater and it's like this is horrifying and so long way of saying that like I don't think that we have time to do that and I think that like it's important to account for like people's feelings certainly and also to go back to that categorical like categorical inequities conversation to account for like who may 
disproportionately suffer when these changes are made and what we might need to do in terms of like reparative policy to accommodate that, whether that's financial, whether that's providing way more like support services, like what what that looks like. But I don't think that we have time. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that like we're having this conversation because that paper exists because at least someone has sense that we don't have the time. Um, and so that like that is that's kind of where I fall on this is that I don't I don't think that there's a way to make this popular. I do think that we can make changes. We can go through those painful changes and people may find that their life is actually improved. But I don't think that we necessarily have time to sell them on that vision. And in many ways, like advocacy spaces like the ones that I've worked in have had decades to sell that vision. And we have done so maybe not in, like unsuccessfully in the face of the constraints that were leveled at us, but we certainly didn't prevent or like present something so convincing from the bottom up that federal policy changed meaningfully. And I think that's what has to change now. I mean, I, I, when you talk about Robert Moses, you know, saying he like he was the problem, not central planning part of like part of the thing. He wasn't really just a bad egg to make it politically feasible you have to, who is going to lose? It's the people who are politically weakest, the minorities and everyone else in the city is willing to stick with the bad end of it, the stick. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, and I think if you talk about maybe one of the biggest issues we have is everyone is willing to make someone else suffer. You know, if you are part of the urban renewal, you can clear the slums and make some people, you know, change the way they live. And if it's a populist message, you make this, you know, hypothetical few billionaires have the brunt and everyone else just lives normally now. But I think people, you know, the environmental message is take shorter showers, do a few little things to make you feel better. And there's not only this message that the large bulk of the people of the country are actually responsible for the environmental cost and we actually all have to do a lot i don't know right and i think that like so i'm reading randy shaw's book right now and like i keep writing in the margins like constituency building because like um or like constituency question mark because so much of the like the for lack of a better word, like case studies that he uses in his book, which is a lot of stuff from the Bay Area, obviously, but also some stuff in Austin um, and Seattle and Denver and what have you, um, is like the the dynamic is like politicians like listening to people that they perceive to be that they perceive to be their largest constituency, mm. um, and but that's not like that's meaningful or like that's not meaningful because like what what does it <laughs> What does it mean to like be an elected representative of, say, a thousand people and you think that the 100 people who show up continuously are your are, are representative of your constituents? Like that's like you're lying to yourself. You're lying to your public. And like, frankly, like probably 85 percent of people like really don't care what happens as long as like their services are still fine and like they can actually park their car which i hate to admit but like so for the most part like people are like nah i don't really care and then there's that like top tier they do tend to be homeowners they tend to be white (laughs) especially in the housing debates that are like viewed as like the constituency and like are they they're probably not but we haven't done a sort of like our all of our engagement processes are totally broken favors that this idea that like decisions are made by people who show up is like total crap right because like the people who have the luxury and the privilege of showing up like are usually like even even if they like support the project which is rare they're like a tiny fraction of that constituency and so we just endlessly perpetuate this idea that like you know for all the like long-standing historical reasons why homeowners are viewed as more valid than renters which is total like that's also a lie um but this idea that like 
oh, you have to show up to the meeting to, to like, to, like it's easier. It's politically easier for us to do this. Like if we have support for things and on my, in, in a day-to-day basis at my job, I'm happy to get people to go to meetings. It is endlessly frustrating to me to be told by administrators and politicians over and over again that like, we need to have people in support of this project. And it's like, I am happy to do that. I've been doing that professionally for a long time. I will do it. Like, however, <laughs> like the idea that you keep asking us to show up to support like a few blocks of a bike lane, like when like the like the world is on fire, <laughs> like um, it's like a stupidly asymmetric difference. And that comes that those are administrators make decisions because of what elected officials tell them that lies at the feet of our mayor. I'm doing my best. I think a lot of other advocates are, but like fundamentally, like to me, having done that for many years to look at this as a like reasonable system is it's not. <laughs> Democracy doesn't work. Let's just let's face it. <laughs> I, I would like to believe in the democratic experiment. But I mean, but it does depend upon who can be the most annoying. And unfortunately, there is an asymmetric arms race of the people who are most annoying or the people who have a special interest they want to maintain. And people who want to, to create a positive vision has real change. Usually, one, they lack coherence. And two, they lack the privilege of being annoying. And three, yeah, that people just don't care about them as much and it goes back to that sort of like norm setting is like the again people who show up tend to represent what is already the default right i mean that's what's always been very striking to me like i i I lived in bernal heights when the mission moratorium was being kicked around and like to me i was like well like isn't this how we already do it like isn't this like (laughs) like isn't like i understand i understand like the political reasons that this proposal came to be what it was but like i was like is this not already like our default standard our default standard is already functionally if not literally a moratorium on building um and so that was like the first time that that point was like super super clear to me is that a lot of times like we don't pass laws to change things we pass laws to enshrine things or encode things and to sort of double down on what we already do um and throwing off that mantle and doing something different is really hard but that goes back to like it's like okay so what is your like hegemonic culture right and so it's that it is that aspirational if not you know valid level of home ownership for so many people that that becomes that those are viewed as constituents and this idea that there might just be people who don't know don't care and interested like it's like the planners holding the meetings like understand that but then it doesn't like that doesn't get factored into the equation and it just goes with the comments that you get but the fact that we have to continually show up for something like a bike lane or new housing just speaks to me like or says to me that like we're just not like we're fundamentally like unprepared to deal with this like we have there's nothing at any level that like is realistic like like in looking forward and saying like okay like we we do have to do this we have again this like moral imperative in the face of climate change but by the way this is making me feel very much less guilty for being too lazy to go to public comments. And <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like yeah, none of this stuff matters. <laughs> I mean, you should. Like, it is. It is both my job to tell you that you should, and that, and like, I believe that you should. But, but it is infuriating as someone who does this professionally. And I have said this to administrators: is that like I respect them, and I respect why they tell me this, and I respect that this is the way that the system works. I would really like to change the system, and I view sort of like my 
broader goal in life as looking at ways in which you can change the system, not necessarily getting people to show up to make comments in support of a bike lane. Although, like, you should do that. It should be easier to do that. We should reform the way that we take those comments. <laughs> but, like, I want the system to favor the bike lane being there as default, not having a meeting to justify the bike lane's existence. I mean, partly, there's not Everything really... should be by right. <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely a theoretical foundation. And the fact is, if everything is just kind of this, you know, nihilistic people support their self-interest, you kind of just get in the fact that any change is untenable. And I think having a world in which ideas, I mean, I'm an idealist in a lot of ways. I just believe we all need to actually have these ideas inside of us and then things happen. We have ideas inside of us right now that suburbs are normal. And that's a very strong idea. And we built our cities around it. And I think we need other ideas to disrupt it. And it, it's, it's a lot of work, but I, I, I guess I have some amount of optimism. Um, I, I don't know if this is going to start a whole other discussion, but, um, I guess, uh, I, I've, I'm just kind of curious, like, um, what are the kinds of jobs that, uh, the Green New Deal program, the paper, um, talks about creating, uh, specifically? Um, I think there's, um, I don't want to do it a disservice because I don't have it in front of me. There is a okay. page in there with a level of expertise needed for like different jobs that are, I think, like mostly like tech focused, like probably to do with like solar panel installation. Okay. Um, but also like the idea that like, you know, someone's job could be painting roadways to for like bike lanes or whatever. Yeah. Like there's like there's some stuff in there. Um, so that, again, like from a jobs guarantee perspective, like there's some solid stuff there. I think like this paper wants to be a jobs guarantee that also ensures that it's green and does not get into the like really morally challenging parts of redistribution, even though it says it's a priority. So, so as far as you talk a lot about what keeps you up at night just, <laughs> and just being, uh, you know, see, seeing doom in our future, but like, is there any is there any core of a reason that you believe there's you know to be hopeful in all this? I think we know what to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. We don't. We don't need to data analyze ourselves to death like we know what to do like we have the answers um i gave some of them <laughs> um and i i actually honestly don't think it's hard we could do it tomorrow if we wanted um so like the thing is that it's always possible um we're just the window is closing very very rapidly <laughs> <laughs> well uh, yeah i guess that's a good note to end on but thank you so much alex for being here of course thank you so much for having me i had a great time we have been talking to alex baca joined by Holly Zoo. All about land use here and everywhere. You can hear this episode and all previous episodes at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford. <laughs> <laughs>